just when you thought it was safe to go onto iTunes. This is Next Level Guy. The only website that makes self-development as fun as going to the movies. It's time to take the red pill and escape the Matrix. What's happening, guys? It's time for another episode of the Next Level Guy Show podcast with your favourite tutor, Ian Dawson McKay. Next Level Guy is the go-to's men's interview, interest and improvement website where I quiz the experts to find out the hacks, tips, methods and protocols that you can implement in your own life to take it to the next level and live happier, healthier, wealthier, sexier and so much more. Today's guest is former FBI negotiator Chris Voss. Chris has over 24 years of FBI experience and was a former FBI lead international kidnapping negotiator. He's also the author of the amazing negotiation bestseller, Never Split the Difference. In this interview, we discuss his story, negotiation, communication methods, and what is said versus what can actually be understood, red flags to watch out for, how to bond with those you communicate with, how to negotiate more effectively, and so much more. I learned so much about communication from this interview, and this is really only about 10% of the gems in his book, so I suggest you also get a copy today. Now let's get to the interview. Hope you enjoy. So thank you so much for doing this, Chris. I really appreciate it. Loving your material. I've, I even bought it on Kindle, rather than getting a free copy. That's how much I love it as an interviewer. So for those people who don't know who you are, and you know you met them in a cliche social setting, how do you explain what you've done? Because you've had some career, and it just gets better and better. Yeah, well, um, I'm a retired FBI hostage negotiator. I was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. And then I turned around and started teaching hostage negotiation as a business negotiation tool, first at Harvard, then at Georgetown and USC. And uh, we put out a book that's been killing it ever since it came out. I told somebody today it was number 15 overall on the most read, most sold on Amazon. And they said, you know, 15 in the business category. And I said, no, 15 overall for everything, most in the most most read, most sold category. Yeah, so the book's done well. It's resonated with people because it's, it's easy to get the concepts and apply them. And it applies in every aspect of your life. Definitely, because that's what I, I noticed in the book when, when I first thought, mm, you know, it's a, a negotiation book, it'll be stuffy, it'll be boring, you know, it'll be on about like statistical analysis and stuff, but the concept in the books are really sort of easy to get into and understand and apply, but I'm interested, like I've read before about, you know, like that you were about the SWAT and the tactical, you know, you wanted to do learn about negotiations instead of doing the SWAT um, because of the impact it was having on your body. But where does it come from before then? Were you sort of very language based as a child? Did you like playing board games like Scrabble and these sort of things? You know, was there a point that you can remember that really got you into dealing with people, negotiating, you know, how words and vocal communications affect us and how we act? Well, I always wanted to learn better ways to do things. And so if you could describe something to somebody to get a situation over with, like I remember when I was a cop, um, if, if I would show up and there would be a problem and the police would be talking to the citizens and it wouldn't be going that well, they wouldn't disperse. You know, if I could whisper something in somebody's ear, um, would they leave? You know, I remember walking onto the scene 
of a domestic disturbance. This guy's bent out of shape at how he's being treated. The police are trying to get him to leave. And he just feels wronged. And he's getting ready to go to jail only because he won't leave. And I remember I whispered in his buddy's ear and I said, like, you guys are good if you just get out of here. If you let your buddy still continue to argue with my other police officers that are here, they're going to take him to jail. And the realization comes over his face and he whispers in his buddy's ear. And then he grabs his buddy by the arm and just drags him out. (laughs) And then the other police officers looked at me with like, what did you say to that guy to get him to drag his friend out? So, you know, how how can you solve situations more quickly is something that I've always kind of I love that kind of approach because... There's things you mentioned in the book that when you brought it up, you notice more and more like the use of personal pronouns, the way that we kind of address each other, you know, like the cognitive biases that we have. We don't, things that we don't even really understand, but once you identify it, it's very hard not to see it. And, you know, is there a universal sort of list of things that would make anybody listening right now a better negotiator or is it dependent on the situation, the people, the emotional connection between people, how, you know, your principles, do they work for everybody or is there a kind of limit depending on who's involved, the nature, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a great question because, Every hostage negotiation team in the world uses the same basic eight skills. So how do you approach people on a human nature level? Because they're using skills that work on human beings, not because they're uh, Africans, not because they're Latins, not because they're Asians, not because they're Western Europeans. It works because they're people. That's why every hostage negotiation team uses the same skills. So you had to start with, first of all, all, the, the idea that we're all wired kind of the same. And you want to respect other people's culture, but most of the time people, you know, how do I deal with, how do I deal with the Chinese? You know, do I got to, do I got to bow? Do I got to drink tea? You know, do I got to bring them a present? What do I got to do? Well, that's all surface stuff. Let's go at people on a human nature basis. And the ridiculous thing is every human being really likes being heard. So you'll actually gain the upper hand in a negotiation getting what you want by making the other side feel like they at least got a chance to make their case. And then that doesn't matter where you are. Everybody wants to be heard. And there are actually tremendous bargaining advantages to be gained from that. So that that's one of the silly things right off the bat works in every single culture. Because that's the thing that I've really liked about your material is that it can be implied for everybody you know, you read some of these books and they'll say, this is the key concepts. And you think, yeah, that's fine. If you're in that situation with those kind of people, you know, you're at that sort of level and your stuff could be immediately applied and it could fix negotiations. Now, I, I particularly like the bit about where you explain to people how negotiations affect every aspect of our lives. Because too many people think it's just, you know, the boardroom business, the stuffy kind of approach. But, you know, you're talking about, like, negotiating with your child for them to go to bed with your girlfriend, with your friends, with your, you know, guys you work with. Have you found anybody that this doesn't work with? You know, is there anybody that's kind of been the exception to the rule? No, and and, and it it's almost sounds like I'm saying it in, in jest, but in point of fact, 
The only people it doesn't work with are people who there's actually something fundamentally dysfunctional in their brain. Now, we joke a lot about people acting like they're dysfunctional, but really, the only people that it doesn't work with are paranoid schizophrenics. I mean, unless there's something actually wrong with their wiring, for lack of a better term, unless they're actually hallucinating, unless they're actually hearing voices. Everybody else has basic human nature wiring. Even if your chemical balances are off, there's some psychological disorders where it's not a wiring issue, it's a chemical balance issue. You know, what they call bipolar or manic depressive or, you know, whatever the version is this year when they revise that book. You know, that's primarily a chemical balance. It's not a wiring balance. So, you know, anybody who's got wiring that's functioning, you can figure out how that wiring works and, and you can use this with them. See, I love that. It's this is these are the kind of skills I love sort of emphasizing on the show. It's ones that anybody can adapt and you know immediately go into things. So I don't know if you would agree with me, but something I used to always love saying was if I was to pick up an employee, I'd pick the person that was had good people skills but didn't know the system over the person who knew the system right. but wasn't good with people because people skills are really hard to teach where anybody can learn a system. Would you agree with that kind of philosophy? Can you know? Can anybody get better? Well, you know, there's there's an actually there's a factor called openness. Now, you can get better if you're open to learning, if you're coachable, or if you work hard. You only need one of the two of those. Now, if you work really hard, you're going to put in the time. You're going to get there. It's going to take you longer, but you're going to get there. I like to think that I'm more coachable. I'm I'm pretty darn hard working, but I like to think that I'm more coachable. Um, and that's my advantage. So if you're either coachable, if you're hardworking, or ideally both, you know, you're going to get there. So something I loved in your book was that, you know, the idea of marrying, um, labeling, that sort of thing. Now, when people are initially trying to get better negotiations, what kind of things would you do working with a client? You know, do you have like a sort of mental checklist that you get them to do or do they have to kind of say, if they do this, you do X? Or do you go with them and say that if this arises, this is the protocols to go into? You know, how do you start working with somebody to get better negotiations? So say they've read the book and they think, oh, brilliant. How can they start putting it into practice? What's a, what's a kind of three-step checkpoint or six-step point checkpoint they can do for the next day they're trying to negotiate? Well, you know, other than once you learn the basic skills, and the skills are simple. I mean, they're simple as hell. You're talking about labels. You're talking about marriage. Nothing could be simpler. You just got to put in your time in your low-stakes conversations. Like, you know, the, the, the guy at the coffee shop, uh, the guy who's driving you in a cab, your Uber driver, your Lyft driver, the person at the, uh, at the grocery store. Um, you know, and then and then – the biggest strategic advantage, but people push back on the most is instead of pitching gain, disarming problems, disarming negatives. I'm, I'm at a grocery store um, uh, earlier today. I'm looking for a special, I'm looking for special treatment in a grocery store. I'm going to go to a part of the grocery store where people can't answer my question, but it's not their job and they're doing something else. So you do what we ref would refer to as a cold read. This person's annoyed. They don't want to be bothered by me. I'm annoying them by simply walking up to them because, you know, I, I want to ask, I want to ask their help and it's not part of the job. So, you know, I could say, Hey, you know, do you want, do, do you want to make a customer happy? Any one of these really stupid, 
yes-oriented questions that are also self-entitled that just make people roll their eyes. But my negotiation here now is getting a piece of information and maybe some effort out of somebody when I am someone they're actively trying to avoid. So what's the reaction going to be? It's going to be negative. How do I, how do, I do that? I call it out in, in advance and excessive. So I walk up to this person behind the counter and I go like, look, I'm getting ready to make your day extremely difficult. So what's a predictable reaction? They're going like, oh, God, what's this guy want? You know, it's something Mm -hmm. horrible. And I say, look, I'm sorry. I'm looking for some of the organic chickens. You're going to have any coming out pretty soon? This lady perks right up because this is I made, you know, I took her to what we refer to as an emotional anchor. And now what I'm asking is a relief. So she, you know, let me check. She goes and she checks. She says, now they're not ready. They're going to be ready in about 10 minutes. She says, if you want, I'll go get one for you and hold it off to the side. Now, real negotiations are about people's time. Now, I'm getting this woman's most valuable commodity, her time, And every single thing she's doing, she's volunteering to do. So I didn't have to ask for it, which means I don't owe her a thing other than my appreciation. It was her idea, so she's going to do it. And on top of that, she actually felt pretty good about it. And it's a relief because my initial emotion shift that I gave her made it sound like, you know, God knows what went through her mind. But she was delighted to do something for me that wasn't part of her job. Most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. I saved myself good. I saved myself at least two trips to the grocery store. On top of that, I'm getting some practice in. This is a low stakes practice. I I now I I love the phrase, I'm getting ready to make your day much more difficult. Because <laughs> it stops people in the tracks, it scares them to death. And then you nine times out of ten, you get exactly what you want because what you asked for was a relief and they're decided they're 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 delighted to do it. So I love the when I was reading the book, it just made perfect sense. You know, it, the way you broke it down, especially about, you know, the, the ways that are fe- the other person's affected by, like, cognitive biasm, the, you know, their own sort of, like, input into the interaction, how they interpret your behavior be- leading up to it and that sort of thing. So how should we overcome our logical brains and snap into that you know i think you call it tactical empathy in the book how how can we be different yeah, yeah, to yeah. the guy that's just coming to being in our soul you know how can we make sure that the person we're interacting with isn't going to just snap back at us you know is there a way that you kind of like a mantra you say to yourself or how do you remember or build is it just practice or is there a way around that yeah, it's just practice, but let me let me break down what the practice looks like, you know, because there's a, there's an awkwardness phase here. There's two things that happen to us when we get ready to try this. We feel awkward, and we start to defeat ourselves, and our brain defeats ourselves in advance. So if you just decide, you know, I'm just going to have a little bit of fun with this. I really don't care what happens. You've now instantly transformed your ability to learn and actually your willingness to execute. Because it's you getting in your way. And until you, until you know that this stuff works, you're going to beat yourself every time. I mean, I was coaching some real estate people the other day. Uh, you know, we had a special intensive two-day real estate negotiation training. And 
we brought this one issue up and he said, you know, they're never going to do that. We, you know, if we ask for that, I'm not even asking for it. So, you know, they're not going to do it. And I said, nice job. You did their work for them. You beat yourself before you even got to the table. You know, they, they don't have to be a good negotiator. You're going to talk yourself out of nine out of 10 things before you even get to the table. But you, you get you get to the willingness to go to the table with this stuff in high stakes. When you practice with your Starbucks person, your coffee person, your waiter, your waitress, the person behind the counter at the deli, I may add that they had a machine for taking numbers, serving at the deli, and I walked right by it, and I know they saw that I didn't pull a number off of this thing. And they're thinking, oh, God, here comes another self-entitled customer. He thinks he's too good to take a number. He won't stand in line like everybody else. He's going to make my day infinitely worse. That's, I know that's what they're thinking. And I also know the power of calling out negatives in advance. You don't got to be a genius to think that the person, what the person is going to think. You know what they think. It's just getting used to the fact of calling it out in advance makes it go away. I'm just thinking, sorry, I was lost in the thought there because I was thinking the number of times that my pre-programming would have lost me the, you know, lost me the sale or lost me the ability to do something. And it's kind of scary when you think about it, how we can be our own worst enemy in that situation. I, t- I tell you, we get, we, we, we absolutely are. I mean, we beat ourselves up so bad and getting to the point where, you know, where we, we want perfection and we know perfection is not there. The, the, the crazy thing about the unknown is we also know we don't have perfection now, but we got, we have predictable responses and it's not failure that scares us. It's the unknown that scares us. So if we were approaching a situation, how do we cancel like our cognitive biasism? How do we accept, you know, like how do we switch this off? Because we kind of go into autopilot and look at the, you know, the guy in the shirt is probably going to be more professional than the guy that's sitting there in the tracksuit bottoms. But the guy in the shirt could be going off to court or something like that, you know. How do we, how do we assume, how do we practice this and remove our, the fundamental barriers that you mentioned in the book, you know, that makes us better negotiators? Because a lot of what you said is fantastic, but I just know that there's people sitting and reading it going, oh, no, I could never do that. Oh, no, I could never do that. How, how do they get rid of that BS? Because some of your students had amazing results in such little time, but how do you break down that barrier at the start just to get people's head and mindset into this that they can be a fantastic negotiator? Well, how are you... There, there are about three different ways you can trick yourself into a positive mindset. Now, the positive mindset actually makes you small, smarter. There's, there's smaller. Yeah, don't make it smaller. It makes you smarter. <laughs> you know, as I, Sean Acker did this phenomenal TED Talk called The Happiness Advantage. He's a Harvard psychologist. His, his TED Talk is one of the funniest ones you'll ever hear. And I've he throws up. I bet you have because it's one, it's, it's one of the biggest ones out there. He throws out in the middle of it the stat that you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Now, that's not my stat. That's Sean's stat. He's a, a Harvard psychologist. He's done the research. I'm satisfied with my source. So if you, you, tr- you trick yourself into a positive frame of mind, you're, you're more likely you're going to succeed. Now, what are those positive frames of mind? You know, one, one of the following is probably going to suit you. You could say, you know what? I'm just going to play a game with this. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to make this a game. 
I don't care if I win or if I lose. I'm just going to do it for the fun of it. You could you could put yourself in a positive mindset that way. You know, a real common mindset is gratitude. It's such a common mindset, it's almost a cliche. But if you say, and I said my, this to myself one time when I was in a negative frame of mind, I said, you know what, I'm lucky to be in this situation anyway. The only reason I'm here is because I'm successful. So actually the fact that I'm struggling with this problem is, is a success problem. I'm grateful for it. Positive frame of mind, gratitude. You're smarter, you're more capable. The other one that's really interesting is like if you're curious, you know, if you just, I wonder if this works. You know, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious to see what would happen here. You know, I think I first started getting on to the curiosity mindset. Another couple of friends of mine wrote a great book called Difficult Conversations. Sheila Heen and Doug Stone. Um, Bruce Patton, I think, is a third guy, but it's mostly Sheila and Doug. And they talk about the curiosity mindset. Well, if you're genuinely curious, it's you're in a positive, yeah, hey, this could be interesting. You know, to be actually interested, be fascinated by it. It's a positive mindset, and it also increases the uh, the likelihood that you'll execute. There's something um, while I was reading your book that really sort of popped in was, I'm trying to think who said it, but it was on about the notion that we are our own worst enemy that, you know, we'll have talked ourselves out of it, you know, that our mindset will be negative and you'll you know you immediately go nope 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 and the, you know the biggest enemy is the one between your ears yeah. so i love the like the things you were talking about like the accusation audit and overcoming the bias and stuff like that so now we've got like somebody listening they're thinking you know what i can do this now i can see negotiations in my life that could make better you know i could get a pay rise i could get my daughter to stay in her bed after she goes to bed I can be a better partner. I can, you know, I can better connection with friends and stuff like that. Now you list a number of amazing techniques and stuff, but how do we overcome that initial thing that a lot of people struggle with in the, you know, when they're dealing with negotiations that the people are, how do I say this nicely? They can start going mental, you know, like it's the, the emotions start running and then it goes tit for tat that, you know, you said this and you said that, and then they fight you back on it. How can we make sure that we overcome, you know, that, that side of things, remove emotions or are emotions always in a negotiation? You just need to learn to play them intelligently. Can they ever, you know, can it ever just become emotionless? Well, it's not that emotions are bad. It's that negative emotions are bad. And, you know, we sort of broad brush this idea. When we say to somebody, hey, look, you're being emotional. The emotions we're talking about is they're angry, they're sad, they're, um, it's, it's some version of anger. So the broad brush term for emotions really is pointed at negative emotions. Negative emotions constrict our thinking. You know, there's an old saying, if you give a speech while you're angry, it'll be the greatest speech you ever regret. I mean, so your thinking is constricted with negative emotions, fear, anger. They're all a version of fear, jealousy, concern, whatever it is. Um, they actually constrict our brain's ability to work. And the flip side of it is positive emotions, again, expand our mental capacity. So it's, it's negative emotions that, that are our problem and, and where, we really, where we really draw the line because 
when the moment that your emotions are no longer intertwined in your thinking is when you're dead. Neuroscience shows us that every single thought we have either starts in the emotional aspects of the brain or goes through the emotional aspect of the brain while the brain processes it. So it's, it's actually not physically possible to have decisions that don't have an emotional component. Because that's good because the number of t- arguments I think I've lost with ex-partners where you've said, oh, you're just being emotional. And you're thinking, well, yeah, I kind of have to be. If I'm not got up and downs, I'm dead. You know, it's... Yeah. So how when you're dealing with somebody, what's what are key language points that you look for? I love the story about in the book about the bank robbery where you noticed the overuse of like personal pronouns, for example. You know, are, do you find yourself automatically looking for these kind of things? You know, are there indicator, like red flags in the way somebody speaks that you particularly look for that says that they're leading towards A, so I need to do protocol B? You know, I know it's now become to a point where it's probably automatic for you, but what are the sort of things that somebody new to becoming a better negotiator, um, you know, this sort of thing, better interactions can look for? Is it the fact that they use I rather than, you know, keeping it non-personated? Or what, what's the sort of things we should look out for as a warning in a negotiation? Well, yeah, you know, one of the red flags to let me know right away that uh, I got a problem child on the other side of the table, right? So, yeah, the, you know, personal pronouns early on, you know, what's the difference there? If you get somebody who's in love with singular pronouns, I, me, my, you know, this person is going to overstate their influence on their side and they have little or no influence whatsoever. Um, so now, you know, that helps. That person is probably still, that person is still a conduit for information to the, the real thinkers on the other side. But, you know, you, you know, your main job is to plant ideas with them in a really uh, deferential, uh, gentle way so that they take those ideas and they repeat them to the other side. The other, the other thing that I, that I look for early on, if someone, uh, I figure that someone I should have my guard up against, and it's going to sound crazy, but if they start talking about win-win right off the bat, I mean within the first three to five minutes, if it feels like they have brought up win-win before we even get anywhere in this at all, they're trying to rip me off. Their, their version of win-win is that they win everything. They don't want to pay me a dime for anything. And, you know, win-win is supposed to have been the spirit of collaborative negotiation. That's its its stereotype. And uh, enough people get overly compliant in the win-win mindset that the cutthroat negotiators have learned, hey, let me, let me throw out this word win-win. And if they bite on it really hard, I can pick their pocket. And so, you know, that, that, that's something. If, some, if somebody calls my company and says, hey, you know, we're going to bring you in for training. we got a win-win opportunity here for you. I'm like, all right, fine. You're, you're trying to cheat me. And, and they'll, then they'll probably go to describe what a wonderful opportunity it is. You know, I get an email from a guy a uh, couple of, about a month, month and a half ago. He says, hey, man, how would you like to come and speak 
to a bunch of billionaire investors. I'm like, all right, let's see where this is going. I'll bet money this guy doesn't want to pay me a dime. And sure enough, you know, he, he's selling the opportunity so hard that from his perspective, I should be just glad to be there at all and I shouldn't charge him anything because the follow-on opportunity, the mystical hope-based strategy, so much business to be had. You know, and I, and I, and I played it out with this guy a little bit, and, and sure enough, they didn't even offer me they offered me 5% of my normal fee. <laughs> That's nice of them. Yeah, you know, and he thought he was being generous. He said, well, you know, you're going to be in Las Vegas anyway, and so it's not going to cost you to get, the, get it. It's not going to cost you to be here anyway. And you just stop by, you know, on your way to the, on your way to the airport from the hotel, so you're not going to need any hotel money. And since you're stopping by on your way from the airport to the hotel, you're not going to need money for food. You're not going to need money for this. Not going to need money for that. So, you know, it'd be worth it to you because otherwise you wouldn't get anything. Oh my God, Jesus! All right, I saw this coming a long ways away. So when you know when up front they're selling you on what a great opportunity it is, you know I'm here to tell you they don't want to pay you a dime. Because that's that's what I love about the book was how. You explained about why you know people are angry and how you can the way you can deal with them, you know that you could address them. That took not took the emotion out of it, but you know you kind of built a connection with them. That you know people that they were inherently looking for connection, and you know you explained about how yeah. you could let them fill the silence by asking open ended questions and things like that. When you look at it now, you know, is do you have to change your approach if it's a single person, if it's a group, if it's a presentation, if it's online, if it's offline? Does this change at all? You know, because surely communication is communication regardless of the nature of it. Or, you know, do people put on different levels of show depending on who's in the room that you have to watch for or you know, is it the usual adage that, you know, the loudest person in the room is the weakest person? Well, yeah, the people that are hanging back, the people that are being real quiet, they're the ones that are soaking up the information. Those are the people that you want to get to. Absolutely. They're the, always the most influential person. People in the room are always the quietest because they know they're influential and they're trying to stay back. They're not tr- trying to prove nothing to anybody. So, yeah, um, but then, you know, the question, are you addressing a group or are you addressing an individual? One of our beliefs is that one of our laws of gravity, if you will, where that we, we believe it's the case, is there's always a team on the other side. The other side always has a buying committee. The other side always has people that they talk to who will kill your deal. You know, they may, they may love what you have. You may have a great opportunity. You may have a great relationship with the person you're talking to. But there's... There's deal killers on the other side. There's girlfriends, there's wives, there's brothers-in-law, you know, if it's a personal decision. There are people there that will kill that deal. If it's a business decision, there are people that are going to be affected by the contract. They're going to be affected by the implementation. So you're much better off if you live by the rule. There's always a team on the other side. There's always a number of people who can not just make the decision but kill it. So if I got a bunch of them in a room, or if I only got one of them in a room, I need to worry about the dynamics of all of them. And that sounds like a lot of extra work, 
But then you got to ask yourself, how much work is it when you put in time to get the deal and then the deal gets destroyed by somebody who wasn't even there? That's the real waste of time. And so the stitch in time, so to speak, is to start to take these people into account from the very beginning. Your overall commitment to the deal is less and you don't lose deals. See, that was what really scared me when I was reading the book was how you mentioned, you know, that you could have somebody that's overselling and, you know, you're kind of, they're not giving you too many red flags, but you think you're doing well with the negotiation and that they don't have that level of responsibility in the the their business or they're maybe not selling it correctly and these people are going to come in and just kill it so how do we is can you plan around this you know you mentioned a couple of um, strategies in your book about some questions or prompts that you could ask to the person to make sure that what you're negotiating is going to be suitable could you go into a wee bit you know like is it a like a, a sample way because i don't want to give too much away yeah it- no, you, you know, you, I mean, you, de- you design your way in there with, with how questions and what questions. Or, you know, how do the people who are going to be affected by this contract, how do they react? What do they think about this? You know, how did this break down last time? Um, who's going to want to put in their two cents or maybe undermine you after you get a, get a signature? You know, you start asking, what you do is you, you really shift out of skidding yes and get into implementation. You know, we like to say yes is nothing without how. You start getting into how and how do the people who are going to be affected, how do they react to this? Then you begin to take solve a lot of those problems because then your point of contact who may be what some people refer to as a blocker or, you know, a fake decision maker. They're actually a really rich source of information. They know what's going on on their side of the table. They know how this stuff is broken down in the past. You know, they, they know what makes people mad that, you know, they, they know who's a tough sell, you know, they're a rich source of information, even though they might not be an influencer, they can tell you a lot. So respect that person, start broadening your, application of what you're trying to accomplish what you're really trying to accomplish is implementation then things start to change and you run into fewer implementation problems you make money well i hope you're all enjoying this interview so far i just wanted to give you a quick break just now and let you know about my affiliate schemes and products that are currently on the market if you go to www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates that's nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates or if you're on the site go to the affiliates deals um, link in the banner at the top page and that's in the blue ribbon you can find out about some of the awesome deals, special offers, and listener exclusives I've set up with some amazing companies. There are special offers, listener deals, and discount codes available here. I'm always updating it. The companies include things like Amazon, Under Armour, there's um, Gains Box, then there's some more triple X stuff, shall we say. There's some supplement companies, so there's some clothing companies. There's some um, ones there if you want to get better with women, if you want to learn to cook better, if you want to do anything better, there's something there for everybody. Get a gift for yourself, get a gift for somebody that you're trying to get into their life, get a gift for somebody like a family member, get a gift for a holiday. Really, there's something there for everybody. Use it and abuse it, 
I don't get any information on you, what you purchase, etc. All I get is a small commission from the company for you using my links. So again, go to www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates or click on the affiliates deals banner and enjoy. Now let's get back to the interview. Enough waffle from me. Yeah, it's, it's amazing just like how the the hardest thing that most people think is, you know, I've got to get that contract right. I've got to make sure it's signed and triplicated. I've got to make sure the documents are in order. And there's so much around just how you speak to somebody, how you you deal with them, how, what they're saying, how they're saying it, that we don't even take into granted. And it's amazing communication. I, and it blew me away when you were talking about in the book about like the bank robbery how the old style of policing, you know, was just to give orders where you started that kind of way of dealing with people on an emotional basis. Why is this not taught, do you think, in uh, like public schools and stuff like that? Is it, you know, is it too difficult for younger people to sort of comprehend? You know, do you have to get a bit of life experience before you truly understand this kind of negotiation? Or, you know, why why is it not a kind of, the prime method that a lot of like younger people are taught because surely it would change their lives. It's nuts. It's, it's, it's nuts. I don't know if it's because it's, it's hard to quantify, you know, in, in real hard numbers, like not just in, in junior high, you know, basic education, whatever country or whatever country in, you know, they're kind of different sort of split out in different levels in the U S and the UK, but, like in a business school, I haven't seen a business school yet where negotiation was a required class. It's optional in every business school that I've seen. Now, that's insane. How do they justify that? How do they think about that? But we, you know, we got educational systems that are set up around, you know, certain academic credentials, academic criteria. And then the problem is once that system is set up like that, you know, we're asking people who don't have the power to change how they're compensated to change what they're doing. Like our, our academics are, you know, they're, they're, they're not compensated on how effective people actually are. They're compensated on, you know, did, they, did the person that came through the door meet the criteria that we set up? But did we prove that the criteria that we set up actually correlates with real world performance? Uh, that's that last step there that we haven't we haven't proven. So nobody teaches negotiation. Nobody makes it a required part of their curriculum. Because your your book is mind blowing when you look at it. Because when you break down your own sort of personal be you know bullshit in your brain that says oh i don't negotiate and you look at like you know if you do if you have a wife a kid you know with the guy in the coffee shop the guy in the bus taking your ticket you know there's thousands of interactions and negotiations we go through in our, our daily lives so something that i really loved was the you know the concept of mirroring like how a simple like so I was always brought up to teach um, to treat the guy sweeping the floor the same as the ceo and always just be, you know, nice to the person because it's a person at the end of the day. You know, too many, too many people will phone like the bank and they'll give the person on the phone a, a complete bulking because something happened in their account and they don't need to see the person. They don't need to deal with them. 
Whereas to me, I know what it's like to be on the other end. So, you, you know, you show empathy and you chat away. And th what I got, what I loved was the way you explain mirroring. Could you go into a wee bit about how to, they can use mirroring to, not their advantage, because that sounds a bit, you know, but how can we become better negotiators, communicators by using the concept of mirroring? Yeah, the, you know, the mirroring is, is one of the great skills. It's super simple. And it's so simple and easy, people don't believe it could work. And it's a hostage negotiator's mirror, business negotiator's mirror. It's not the body language mirror. You're not trying to, you know, if the guy puts his, his right hand to his chin, you don't put your right hand to that to your chin. Mirroring, short, sweet definition, repeating the last one to three words of what someone has just said. Just repeating the last one to three words of what they just said. And then when you get really good and you understand and you can you can pull that off at any time, then you can pick out a selected one to three words from anywhere in a conversation. But it's so simple. It keeps people talking. And it gets them to reword what they just said. And also it's so simple. You can, if you, if you built the skill, you can use it when you, somebody said something and it's just blown your mind. Like what they just said just makes no sense. And your brain is going like, this does not compute. This does not compute. And I, I got a I got a video on our YouTube channel. Um, uh, YouTube channel, if I may, is uh, the Black Swan Group's YouTube channel. And one of our uh, videos that I put up is mirroring. And I and I mirror with a bank robber. And I find out about, you know, he inadvertently says something about his getaway driver who's not there, and we don't even know he's got a getaway driver at the time. I'm asking about his van, and uh, he says, "Hey." Um, you chased my driver away. And I was shocked that he said that. Like, I, I don't know anything about a driver. I'm, I'm like, you know, this does not compute. I don't understand. It so caught me off guard. And so, but I had the mirroring skill. What do I do when my brain is just shut down on me and I'm shocked? I go, we chased your driver away? He goes, yeah, when he saw the police, he cut and run. I mean, I've got this actual recording from the actual hostage negotiation from the book. It's at the Chase Manhattan Bank I pulled this sniffet out. I put it up on our on our on our in our YouTube channel in a video. Like we didn't even know there was a bank robber at that time, and that one statement is what ended up causing the bank the getaway driver to get arrested, and he had to plead because that tied him. Finally, we had something to tie him to the bank robbery. I just said it because my brain had shut down. The mirror is such a great skill, and when you mirror, the other side is going to say stuff. They probably wouldn't say otherwise, and that's exactly what the bank robber said. Yeah, I loved it when I read it because I noticed like that a lot of the interviews that you were doing when the book first came out, people were amazed at like just how the open-ended questions were. Could you know could do this, could do that? But I was blown away by the way you, you know you can't talk about the concept of labeling, about mirroring, etc. Because I I was into pickup when I was a bit younger. And, you know, the whole dating mirroring thing about how you move your arms to mirror how she's got her hand or you right, sit right. in a you know, and I thought, oh, no, here we go. But I love that concept because you almost invite that person to go further and to explain. It's like, you know, if you stay, stay silent and the person who speaks next is the weaker one because you're, it's, they need to fill that space. They feel uncomfortable that there is no communication going on. So you mentioned about the voice and things like that. So when you're dealing with somebody that is on the phone 
or like you're dealing with the bank, you know, where it's like you're 100 yards across the road. What are you listening from the voice? You mentioned there's three kinds of voice. You mentioned how you had a team listening for like the ticks in the voice, the um, the noise in the background, another person checking on the language, another person dealing with the person. You know, how can we be listening and understanding and picking these kind of, you know, the, like things that can work to our advantage while we're on the phone? Is it, you know, is there something that we should be thinking as the call's going on? Should we have a wee checklist before we go to a negotiation? How would you start building, if somebody's wanting to be like a better sales caller, how would they go about it? Well, yeah, what are you looking for? Um, Sort of two things. Combine two ideas. Vision drives decision. And the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. So you're trying to get somebody to make a decision. Um, figure out how they made a similar decision in the past. Really high likelihood that's how they're going to make this decision. If you're in business, what's your relationship to them? Have they ever made this kind of a decision in the past with someone who bears a similar relationship between the two of you? Like, are they a brand new client and how big of a deal is this decision? Have Did they ever make this decision with somebody they just met? Because if they're a brand new client, you don't have a pre-existing relationship with them. Some people will make that decision. Some people won't. If they made it with someone they just met, you know, what was their criteria? Well, I, I went to experts. What experts can I turn you on to? Because past behavior is going to drive future behavior. And... So you, you use hostage negotiation skills to get in there to kind of figure out what's going on in their brain and to pull the information, you know, how did this go in the past? Where did it fall down? What did you learn from it? Those are all questions that will tell you how they made the decision in the past, what they think of that decision, which is now going to be, give you a great basis of predicting how they're going to move forward. So that in and of itself, just understanding vision drives decision and the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior gives you a lot to work with. I love how you're, you fix people by dealing with the concepts around it, how it's built. You know, you're not saying to people, here's the script, this is what you have to say, because it's not maybe not going to fit the person's personality, it's going to come across as fake, etc. You know, like one of, the sim- one of the simplest tips you gave in the book, which blew me away, was about like slowing down how I speak. Yeah. And... I found that I was thinking, oh, yeah, I kind of talk slowly. I talk clearly. And then I listened to myself on a few of my older podcasts. And when I got excited or I was, like, negotiating with somebody to come on, I was, like, supersonic speed. And I was putting, like, I could sense the emotion. I could say, you know, I was like, oh, my. I really started pinpointing <laughs> where I was going wrong. Uh-huh. It blew me away in that sense, you know. And I notice it now, that how fast I'm talking. And I love that concept of just calm it down you know i think you mentioned later in the book about letting time become your ally right you know like there's strict deadlines but talk slowly and you know could you go into a little thing about that you know what are the kind of things we can use in a negotiation to our our advantage rather than the cost the product the you know the like the bare essentials in that sense well you know tone of voice is is a black belt you know, a master practitioner's tool. It is such an overlooked aspect, which is awesome 
you know, because people think it's too basic to pay any attention to it and they overlook it. But, you know, the downward inflection. You know, that's a great voice to use when you really want the other side to know a certain point is not going to change. And what it does is it it lets them hear it and feel rock solid about you. And they don't get backed into a corner. It keeps you from raising your voice and, you know, having to yell at them and tell them you're not going to change it or threaten them if they try to change it. You know, you just our favorite one is whenever somebody tries to sneak a work for hire clause into one of our contracts, we don't do work for hire because it gives away our intellectual property. So we're just never going to do it. And uh, if it comes up, you know, I'll tell somebody on the phone or in person, I'll say, we don't do work for hire. Just like that. And they get this feeling that that's just not going to go away. And it's not. But now we don't got to argue about it. You know, I don't threaten them. I don't give them false trade-offs. I don't, I don't back them into a corner. You know, I, I make all these emotionally intelligent moves that I understand moves me and is to my advantage about two moves ahead. You don't want to f- think any farther than I'm two moves ahead. But it gets me two moves ahead and, and it leads me where I want to be and there's no argument. Because that's what blew me away was... Um... I've realized like one of my other things I do apart from running a great podcast, hopefully is um, I work with uh, students in university and I was thinking that I know I was quite good with dealing with them explaining, but sometimes they try to take advantage of your good nature. Mm -hmm. And I never noticed. Say it isn't so. No, (laughs) I kind of take, I noticed like how, when you mentioned that about the downward and the upward, like, connotations you put on things that i was maybe leaving things open to interpretation or another question that i wasn't being strict enough and that's something i struggle with was dealing with a situation where they've not done something and i've been the pal to them but i need to tell them no there's no chance you're getting your visa sorted or like you know you have to go way back to your home country and get it sorted or you have to do this you know, they kind of think, oh, well, because he's always been so nice. You know, I mean, I struggle with that confrontational side of things, the standing up and being that strict kind of person when I've kind of maybe been a different kind of personality before. So how can people listening be better at confronting people, standing their ground? You know, is there language that we should be using? Is there a tone of voice? Because I noticed you mentioned about that tone, the authoritarian tone is not a good tone to use. So how should I adapt what I'm saying or the way I'm saying it to make sure that they get the point across that, you know, they've got to bust and get their ass moving and get whatever it is that I'm asking for? Yeah, you know, there's there's a couple of tiny little touches you can usually put into something like, you know, downward inflecting with a smile. You know, it helps it land more softly. You know, the softer your words land, the more likely they are to sink in, the more confident you appeal appear you know I, I can always tell when somebody is really insecure because they have to appear really confident and really right and you know really authoritarian i mean typically the more authoritarian somebody appears in their demeanor the more ordering they are the more insecure they are i mean they're horrified um and i've even said to people are are you so afraid that I won't do what you ask that you can't ask me nicely. 
Now, the way I said that was also very intentional just now because it was mostly downward inflecting. I was, I wanted to have a, you know, a little bit of a smile, but at the very end I hesitated. Then I threw a little bit of an upward inflection at the end. You know, I said, you can't say it nicely, you know, and that upward inflection at the tail end helps it land without that landing being exploded. I need my words to land in a way that doesn't make people feel backed into a corner. And then chances that they're going to comply then are very high. I love that because that's the problem is when you are trying to be, not confrontational, but when you're trying to be the dominant one where you've got to get them to do something because of like government regulations or because, you know, some protocol the university has, it was almost like I was letting them either have an open by it sounded like it was a question mm-hmm. or sometimes I would say it and I would come across as a bit of a dick and they would go, geez, you didn't need to say it like that. You know, and I didn't even mean to be like that. And that's what I liked about your, like the book where you were saying some things like what a difference a smile makes. Right. Yeah. You know, but then you were talking about anchoring and mirroring and, you know, there's something there for everybody, no matter what stage they're at. And that, that kind of section in the book alone made me better with my students where I was kind of understanding where they were coming from and understanding where they're like when they came in and maybe they were being like quite abrasive because of the, some emotional thing was happening to them. And I was trying to explain it to other people, you know, like how amazing your book is because it actually identifies and shows the things that makes us not just better negotiators, but better people, better communicators. We understand each other, you know, like the tactical empathy. We, right. And that it blows me away that you deserve all the credit you're getting for this book because it is simply amazing. What has been like the the favorite part of writing the book? You know, was there something that you'd held on as a like a standard belief that when you started analyzing it for the book that it really kind of changed your opinion on it or you know, has there been a, a, a client transformation that has been your absolute favorite when you hear it and you read it back now? Um, I, I don't know that there's anything that much changed my opinion on it. There's a few things we'd say differently. Like we got a, we have a section in the book about leverage. And when we collaborated on this book, we, you know, my son and I really wrote the book. My son helped so much. I mean, he should be listed as a co-author because he contributed so many thoughts and ideas. You know, I had to hire him. Otherwise, he'd give me a hard time about the book. <laughs> but then, you know, we're talking with our co-author, Tall Ross. Tall's a genius business writer. And Tall says, you guys aren't talking about leverage here. And, you know, I said, well, there's always leverage. So you just take an emotional intelligence approach. And you don't worry about it. And he's like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Everybody thinks in terms of leverage, we got to put some leverage stuff in there. So we put some stuff in a book about normative leverage and relative leverage. And we tried to describe leverage as this non-stationary idea. Because the, the other problem with leverage is, and I'm, I'm sitting the other night, people say, how do we get leverage? How do we get leverage? What you got to do in this negotiation is you got to get leverage on the other side. Well, they're talking about leverage as if it's a, it's a house. You build it and it's there. Or it's a building. Like it's something stable. It's not stable. And it doesn't really matter what leverage you have on somebody. What matters is what they think of the leverage you have on. Which means you could have the, 
Leverage is supposed to be the ability to inflict harm, but if they don't care about that harm, you got no leverage. We learned that the hard way in hostage negotiation because we figured all we had to do uh, was show up and threaten to kill people, and they come out, put a SWAT team outside and say, come out and we'll kill you, which is really what the SWAT team is there for. And people would say, I, you know, kill me, because they would decide that our leverage was no good. They'd discard it. So now, because of that, you know, we don't talk about leverage anymore. We talk about influence. You know, you're a smarter negotiator. You're more effective negotiator when you focus on influence instead of leverage. And now when we talk about people, we talk about influence. We talk about what's durable influence, what's fleeting influence. You know, how do you establish influence at last? How do you establish trust-based influence? And it lasts and it sticks around. And, you know, the influence that doesn't last is you ask people a bunch of yes questions, you get them to say yes to stuff. That does not last. Your influence from yes lasts for as long as you're in the room. And the minute you step out the door, that influence is gone. So we really focus much more on influence now than, than, than leverage. It's when I'm, I was just thinking about like some of the chapters in the book. You know, there's a chapter there about getting, um, like uh, getting a, a raise in your salary. About the chapter there about how to deal with people like a bank robber. You know, there's all these kind of amazing things. I mean, we've been talking for almost an hour around the book, we haven't even gone into like the kind of key components in it, the key concepts. So, I definitely have to have you on again, it, like just. Just the the ability, the amount of stuff we can chat about communication is mind blowing. But what would you want somebody to take away from it, like from this interview, just listening to it? Apart from buying the book, obviously, uh, you know, and so what would you want them to remember about communication, negotiation, after reading the book? What what would you think are the key points that you'd want them to remember if they did only those things? You know, one, uh, one description of negotiation is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. So um, hear the other side out first. I mean, just experiment with that. Try it in your low stakes conversations. Paraphrase them, summarize them, you know, whatever you got to do to hear them completely out. And then just stop and wait for a few moments after you've heard them out. You're going to be shocked at the number of people that are going to turn around and give you exactly what you want once they've been heard out. And the number of people, number of your negotiations that you will solve that way, am I telling you you're going to solve them all? No. What I'm telling you is you will solve enough of them that it will be more than worth your investment of time. And then the ones that you don't solve, you will have established such a great working relationship with the other side by hearing them out that the chances that you're going to solve it in a way that you're really happy with are extremely high. So just try, experiment a little bit with what it takes to hear somebody out and see what kind of an impact that has on your outcomes. Because that's something that was really great about the book was the bit where you said about just listen to the other side. You don't need to agree. There's a difference between actually listening to them and um, actually just giving them you know, a chance to air what they believe in from their opinion to actually believing the same thing as them. And I think that's a problem is if you say to somebody, listen to the other side, they think you're meaning try, you know, understand and empathize with them where 
you learn a lot more by just listening to them. And I think that's a brilliant concept you've raised. But, you know, you've done a number of like amazing interviews and we definitely got to go uh, back on and really talk about more about the book. But what's a, a concept about the book that, you know, that you're really interested in that you've maybe not had a chance to explore? What's your favorite bit about the book or communication? Or is there something that you've maybe missed that you really wished you'd included? Now, it's nothing that I wish we would have concluded. There's there's things that we found out that are true that we didn't quite realize were true. One of them is the amount of opportunities that are out there that are fake opportunities uh, are much, much higher than I ever imagined. And the fake opportunities that suck up your, your time are so frequent, you know, that we talk a lot about, you know, how do you find out early on whether or not there's a deal at all? And there's a saying in sales, it's not a sin to take a long time. It's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. So what are the deals that you're never going to get? What do those look like? And how do you sniff those out sooner and, and, and then get rid of them politely so that you can spend time on deals that you can make? I mean, we talk about that a lot these days. Because it must be amazing the amount of emails you have from people what selling you what maybe in their head is a good deal but you know it's like the five percent team you know it's the the you know they're not even realizing how cheeky it is what they're they're offering you but to them that's a good deal and that's now wait a minute wait i I get i gotta stop you there because uh i've always sort of wondered about that term i've been called cheeky a couple of times so are you trying to tell me that wasn't a compliment well the five percent no, you said, you know, how cheeky it was for them to do that. I mean, I've been called cheeky a couple of times. Oh, no. Um, well, it depends. I'm, 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 uh, it depends. It's usually not that good, though, is it? No, not really. You can, have a, <laughs> you can have a girlfriend who calls you cheeky in a conversation. You're like, oh, you're cheeky wee soul or you're cheeky wee sod. Like oh, a, that's a, a good thing, thing. Yeah? But you can also have it cheeky as a negative thing. Now, I can't, I'm Scottish. Now, we're weird in that we can call... I don't know if you're okay with, but we call we can use the word "cunt" as an uh, as an offensive term, but we can also use it as uh, like a pally term. It's almost like a, a term of endearment, and it's what a lot of people struggle with because we, right, we, right. we use language in a weird, weird kind of way. And that was something I was meaning to go into was about different cultures using different kinds of language. Does it matter that? You know, are you ever afraid that, if, like, there might be a phrase that you're going to use that seems legitimate in negotiating skills, but is going to cause problems down the line, or is there always a way that you can bring it back? And you know, do you just mirroring their kind of language and allowing them to to build the kind of language and terminology and the way they speak and using the body language, you let them start so you can mirror them. You know, do you ever worry about the way society's changing, like, you know, like, um, what do you call it, rhyming slang and all this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, you know, here's the way around that, because you're always going to make mistakes. That's the bottom line. You're going to make a mistake somewhere along the line. It's the accumulation of what's come up to that point is that your mistake is accepted. So um, universally, deference works with everybody if you're deferential if you're hearing the other side out if you're genuinely respectful all the time 
then they will forgive you for those mistakes. And that, and you're going to make mistakes. It's impossible to be error free. It's impossible to drop into another culture. Heck, we make mistakes with each other because we misread the situation. So if you stick to deference and respect and hearing people out, then you drop a word that in one language is just a routine joke and in another language is horrible, then they'll forgive you for it because it's, it's the context of how you threw it out there. And people know you're going to make mistakes. They're going to forgive you if, with, as long as you're deferential and respectful. I love that. It's, it's your, you basically break down how to be a better person, how you know how to communicate better, but you break down a lot of the people's natural like walls are going to put up and say, Oh, I could never do that. Why? Oh, you can't smile when you speak to somebody. Oh, right. Uh, you know, yeah. you can't do that. You can't do that. What happens if I say something wrong? You know, like you've just explained that the book is amazing in that sense. And it's one of those, it's one of the few books lately. I mean, I get a lot of them to read for interviews and stuff that I've really got into. You know, I, was, I had it on the Kindle, I had it on the phone app that I was constantly like, I started utilizing it straight away. And it, it blew me away that. I was just getting into it and I could see results straight away. So the book is a must buy for people, but do you get to a point now where family members and like partners and stuff like that are going, Oh yeah, stop meddling me. Oh no, you're using, you're uncreating my terms or you're build, you know, you're creating an emotional state. Do, do they get to a point where they're calling you out on things because you're maybe used to these kind of things or. Well, that's ever- an indicator of insecurity. You know, and so what they're telling me is for whatever reason, they're insecure, they're fearful, they're worried. And then, all right, so then I got to ask myself, all right, what am I doing? How are my actions and my words not lining up that's causing this insecurity? And some people are just insecure, you know, and, and you're going to benefit of the doubt as much as you can, but they're insecure. They're like, all right, you know, there's no way around this. You want to you wanna misinterpret me, allow me to be clear with where, where I'm going with this, and you're still going to have your guard up. You're telling yourself more. You're telling me more about you than you're telling me about me. And you know, I like information, so it's going to help me know about what to expect from you. Yeah, there's something if you're a bank robber or a or a partner, the last thing you want to do is give you information and you know in an argument because it's just I I got how much value there is in this book. You know, it is absolute phenomenal. But for those listening who want to come and work with you, connect you in social media and all these sort of things, you know, how do they get in touch? How can they follow your latest projects and that sort of stuff? I've got to have you back on, but I know we're just, we're over the hour now, so I'm really wary of your time, but how can they keep in touch, you know, get a copy of the book, connect, take it from there? Yeah, well, Amazon is, is going to remain the best source for the book. I mean, Amazon is has the best prices. I, when I buy copies of the book, I buy them from Amazon. If I'm, you know, if I'm buying any less than 10, 10 or less at a time, Amazon's going to give me the best price. So I get no interest in Amazon. Uh, I wish I owned their stock, <laughs> but uh, that's the best place to buy the book. Now, we got a newsletter. Now, the newsletter is the best way. It's a great supplement to the book. The newsletter is free. You know, the old f- f- phrase a friend of mine used to use, if it's free, I'll take three. And uh, besides being free... It is, here are the other two advantages to it. It's concise. Some newsletters you get, 
you know, the 10 different thing, articles, and they're trying to be so comprehensive. You don't know what to read, so you don't read anything. We send you out one short, sweet, concise, actionable article. Each week, Tuesday morning is when it comes out. This week's article was how to negotiate your bills with your utility companies. We found a listing of utility companies that are flexible uh, in, in negotiating their bills, typical percentages they drop in there. All the big utility companies, your utility provider or your cell phone provider is on that list. So that encourages you and, and it lay out a very specific strategy of how to approach them. So there's two ways to subscribe to the newsletter. If you're in the U.S., we got a text to sign up function. Text to the number 22828, and that number is 22828. Send a message, FBI Empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check put a space between FBI and Empathy, which it will if you don't watch it. And so then you'll get a response back asking you for your email address. Now, if you're not in the U.S., just go to the website, blackswanltd.com. B-L-A-C-K, like the color, swan, S-W-A-N, like the bird. LTD like limited.com. You go on our website, go to our blog. That's the newsletter, the negotiation edge. All the back issues are there. You can scroll through them. You can find stuff to look at. The newsletter is a gateway to everything we do. We got a lot of free stuff out there. The stuff we have on YouTube is free. Um, again, it's a good price. We put out a lot, a lot, a lot of content for free. You will get a long way with the book and the newsletter by itself. You decide you really want to step into the big leagues. Then we got a bunch of online training. We got a number of different uh, options for you. We do training across the U.S. and come to our in-day training session for some real immersion and negotiation. And you know we'll help you up the level of your game. I mean, I really cannot thank you enough for this. I know I mean I'm choked up with the cold heart just now, but. That I've taken so much from this. The book is amazing. I generally, generally cannot stop ranting about it and recommending it to people. You know, just if you're basically breathing, you're negotiating in some sense of the word, you know, so exactly. you, you, sh- you need to get a copy of this book. Is there going to be a volume two coming out soon? You know, we're no closer to having another book come out than two years. We're going to sit down with our co-author, Tal Roz, this fall and talk about whether or not it's time to do another book. But if we agree to do a book, it's at least two years away. In the meantime, we're putting a lot of stuff out via our web, uh, our uh, website. So come take a look at that. Definitely. You're absolutely killing it. You're giving away amazing content. The book is phenomenal. The floor is open to yours. Is there any training sessions, projects coming up that you want to promote? Yeah. Well, we do these one day training sessions across the country and, um, the most frequent description that we get from people who attend are, is life-changing. So subscribe to the newsletter, check the website for the training sessions, come to one of our sessions. They're expensive. So, if, you know, what's it worth to you to change your life? Only you know. Well, I think that's a perfect way to leave it just now. I need to get you back on. We'll hit the book into a deeper sense, but... I just wanted to give just some of the teasers, some of the amazing concepts you have in the book, because just the framing, the mirroring, the, you know, building the motion, speaking slower, smiling, these kind of things would change everybody's negotiating skills. But the the deeper stuff, that's when it really gets into, you know, that's when you become like Neo from the Matrix, 
(laughs) That's it for another week. Thanks for listening. Absorb it. Practice it. Use it. Until next time, keep trying to hit that next level in your life.